After five weeks of adverts, battle buses, TV debates, deadlocked opinion polls, carefully choreographed public appearances, Millie fandom and one eight for Edstone, the 2015 general election is finally upon us and it is still far too close to call. But that won't stop us having a go. I'm Cameron Clark and welcome to the Election Beat, the general election media podcast from the drum. On today's show, we'll be reviewing the party's last-ditch attempts to win your votes, debating whether Nick Clegg, Nicola Sturgeon or the press will be the real kingmaker in the event of our own parliament, and drawing on Nostradamus levels of foresight to predict what outcome we'll be waking up to on May the 8th. With us here at Jungle Studios for the first time is Emily Hunt, a London-based strategy consultant and former political pollster in the US. And we also have our podcast regulars, TBWA's Ryan Wayne, a former House of Commons advisor, Wolf Olin's creative director, Chris Moody, the ex-Fleet Street news editor and former Labour advisor, Chris Boffey, and the Tories' 2005 campaign adman and London advertising CEO, Michael Mashinsky. Delighted to have you all with us. So... Let's start with the party's tactics in the last week of the campaign. And if there was one stunt that towered over all this week, it was Labour's Ed Stone, Ed Miliband's widely mocked pledges carved in stone. George Osborne has called this Miliband's Sheffield rally moment. Is it that bad? Uh, Ryan, what do you think? Uh, well, the, I mean, there's debate about whether the Sheffield rally moment was actually a Sheffield rally moment, but that's probably a different conversation. For me, I think it's... It's a, it's a bit of a gimmicky move, to be honest. And I speak as a Labour supporter. And I know for a client in the, back in the day, we got a limestone engraved and hate to think how much it, it's cost. But actually, the principle behind it, and that's what you should be looking at this, is a sound one. And that's about Ed restoring the trust in politics. I mean, you know, what, when you look at the principles that were, uh, that were cast into stone and the fact that he wants that on permanent displays, you can look out it when he is Prime Minister. I think that's that's positive and it, it sends a strong message out to the electorate that, you know, when Labour and Ed Miliband in particular say something, they mean it. And you contrast that to some of the promises that were made in 2010, promises which have been unkept and therefore promises which has probably destroyed trust in politics. And I think it's probably needed, at least the principles behind it. Maybe it will be manifested in stone, but definitely, definitely sound principles. As a newsman, I know little or nothing about advertising. But I remember someone saying, if the story is bigger than the advert, or the person who's in the advert is bigger than the advert, the advert's failed. Well, the monument is bigger than whatever was on it. Because <laughs> I can't remember any of the principles. I've got no idea what the principles were. It was crass, it was giggly boys in a, or girls in a, in a room, thinking, what a wheeze this is. Uh, there was no one looking, giving an overview and showing how it, thinking about how it could be ridiculed. And uh, it was bad enough before they sort of ladled a bit more stupidity on it by saying it's going to be put in the Downing Street Garden, of, you know, a grade one listed building, yeah. a, a building that goes back centuries. It's part of the fabric of this country. And we're going to put this ridiculous... No, it's total rubbish. It was, it was stupidity of a... No, I was going to say monumental kind, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I think all the puns have been done by the newspapers this week, but, uh, Michael, this was a bit of a gift to the Conservatives. Yes, I think weekend, that George Osborne used the Sheffield uh, uh, moment to try and focus attention on what happened in 92, and this is their hope that uh, even though the polls in 92 showed a, a Labour lead all the way through to exit, uh, that the Conservatives came through with quite a, a large majority. So that's their prayer. Um, in terms of the, the, uh, the stunt, it was a disaster, um, made worse by the fact that the day after, the Labour vice chairwoman um, said, well, when, we, you know, he may actually break these, uh, use the word, I think, uh, um, promise rather than pledge, mm -hmm. because what was actually written on them was, was, was vacuous. It wasn't a pledge. There was no specificity about it. It was vague aspirations of, you know, we'll have more houses or something that wasn't measurable, wasn't defined. So I think on every measure, it was an abject failure. Emily, welcome to the, to the podcast. Um, from your time observing political campaigns in the UK and the US, have you ever seen anything quite like the Edstone? I thought it was a Photoshop gag. When I first saw it, I didn't actually think it could possibly be real. Um, I mean, the pictures of him standing in front of it, it just it doesn't look like there's any way anybody would have done something like that. Uh, my favorite one, um, 
of people who then went on to Photoshop it is the one with the, the grocery list, mm. um, which I think is quite good. So, you know, replacing the pledges with, you know, needing a, a loaf of bread. Um, it just doesn't feel real. Um, so, yeah, I, I've never quite seen anything like it. I can't imagine putting a giant tombstone or Moses-like tablet in front of a very important building that is the the home of, you know, the the leader. It's a bit tricky for me. I, I, I kind of can't believe it still. That list should have, talking about shopping lists, it should just have ham, 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 ham. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chris Moody, you've been talking on the podcast about the need for politicians to do something different to engage with the electorate, but I'm guessing this probably wasn't quite what you had in mind. No, well, I wasn't expecting it. Didn't see this one coming. Um, <laughs> it was kind of kind of baffling. I completely agree with your point. It was, I, I was kind of amazed by how it was approached with such a straight face. Yeah. Um, if it had been a small amount of humour in it, um, if if it wasn't just a literal interpretation of someone sat in a room saying, "I'd like to cast these into stone," mm-hmm. um, then I think it would have been really great in a, in a way because it's super memeable. You can imagine it going across all the different social media channels, which it did. Unfortunately, it just went across in a way that they had no control over whatsoever. Um, it's kind of like this a weird combination of the thick of it and Spinal Tap at the same time. And what what I think it pointed to me is that we, when these discussions are happening, it, they're happening in a in a room somewhere where actually there's clearly some sort of strong hierarchy, and just the first decision has has kind of been cast into stone. And what's missing, and I'm bound to say this. Is a, is a creative director's voice, is somebody to kind of take a step back and just look at, actually, is the this kind of vision, is that a good idea? OK, well, actually, being firm and making a clear statement to the public, mm. that's needed. But is that the best way, is that the best medium to do it? And I, I suspect a, a kind of a huge tombstone is, is not necessarily the best medium. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think the absence of an advertising agency for the Labour Party, mm. one who's on a retainer's work with them for, for over the, the course of this Parliament, has been a problem. And, you know, I would question the aid which recommended the stone. Uh, that said, I don't think it'll be catastrophic for it. I think it'll go into the cupboard of failed election gimmicks, along with Cameron's triple lock promise on taxes. But it does point to a real problem in that politicians can no longer promise things because people just don't believe them. And that is worrying not just for the Labour Party and their electoral chances, but for politics as a whole. And it's not just a problem affecting Ed Miliband, it's a problem affecting all of the political leaders. How good an idea, I mean, getting away from how good a stunt it was, but how good an idea is it to make these definitive promises ahead of an election when we've seen time and time again parties get elected and then having to renege on some of these promises? So we've, we've mentioned... Uh, Nick Clegg on some of the previous episodes and obviously what happened there with tuition fees. I mean, are they, you know, making life difficult for themselves, Labour, Chris, if if they do ultimately get elected? Well, they can't say nothing. And they've got to be optimistic and they've got to say what they see or portray the future for the electorate that they're hoping to persuade. But what's happening is every day they're up in the, the ante. They're trying to outdo each other every day. And as you said, as Ryan pointed out, there's a lack of trust, and this is just adding to the lack of trust because people are seeing through it straight away. Well, I've got a vine here, which obviously our listeners won't be able to see, but they can hear, because I think this just is an episode, a clip from the Question Time interview with uh, Ed Miliband, which whose words I, th- I believe will come to her. We're not going to have a coalition. Not going to do a deal with the Scottish National Party. We're not going to have a coalition. Not going to do a deal. With the Scottish National Party. And on and on we go. So, um, <clears throat> if the electoral situation is such uh, on Friday morning and we wake up that there is a uh, Conservative Party unable to put through a Queen's speech and a Labour Party that has a minority of votes and a minority of seats putting through a Queen's speech with the backing of the SNP, you know, it looks and it sounds like a deal with the SNP and that there will be the nearest thing to a revolution in this country since uh, Charles I. I don't know, I disagree. I think support and deal um, are two different things. You don't need support. 
you don't need to do a deal to get support. And I think the SNP's biggest fear would be a Tory government, and therefore they would want and probably be silly of them not to not, back Labour. Not party. in a situation where the Labour Party has fewer... I don't think that's actually going to happen, but if the, if the Labour Party had fewer MPs and fewer votes and were only able to put through a, a, a Queen's speech because the SNP backed them, that would be perceived to be, in the context of what had happened, uh, unacceptable and, and that he would have broken his promise. So there's no point in putting vague aspirations yeah. up in, in, in a limestone monument if you're the most fundamental thing that is affecting this current election is would you, would you, would you not be supported in power by the SNP and any support is going to have a, a quid quo pro. That's politics. People understand that. But we can strip away your hyperbole about Charles I and, uh, and uh, what's going to happen. Uh, there will be a hung parliament. Uh, if the Labour Party had the fewest, fewer seats than the Tories and the Lib Dems didn't have too many and the SNP were doing it on a supply basis, Labour Party would lose even more trust of the electorate and would probably never recover for a generation or two. But, but I mean, the only constitutional requirement is that you have uh, confidence of the House. Yeah, this is yeah, about but, the trust. Yeah, yeah, confidence of the House is one thing. Confidence and trust of the people is another. And if it was on a supply basis uh, and someone pulled out... Labour Party would get slaughtered in the subsequent election. Well, let, let's come on to this issue then of what will happen if we wake up on Friday morning and there is a hung parliament, which is what the polls are broadly still suggesting. In that scenario, we've, we've said that the likes of Nicola Sturgeon, Nick Clegg, maybe even Nigel Farage might play kingmaker in getting David Cameron or Ed Miliband into government. But how significant a role will the media play in establishing whether a government, a coalition or a supplying confidence deal, whatever it might be, is legitimate, has the right to govern the country? Because there's already been suggestions this week from elements of the, the Tory supporting press and David Cameron himself saying that uh, if Labour didn't win the most seats and still attempted to form a government with uh, Nicola Sturgeon, then this would not be seen as, uh, as legitimate by the electorate. So... Uh, we've touched on that issue there, Ryan, but um, do you think that there is a way that Labour could form a, a credible government in that uh, in that circumstance? Well, I think it would be a minority government, and if there was numbers of MPs on the left outside of the SNP who could turn it into a formal coalition, then that's a legitimate government. Now, if Labour, Ed Miliband, leads a minority government and the SNP you know, want to support them or don't want to support them, then that's... A different question, but it's not him seeking their support or seeking a form of coalition. And I think when Ed Miliband rules that out, he he genuinely means it. And you know what? We've heard from that fine. He said it. So the media, who let's face it, aren't his biggest fans anyway, will hold him to account on that. Well, the media presumably will have a big role to play, if nothing else, in shaping the public mood and the, the media, public the perception. Me the media will go the way the media is now. And if you look at uh, the papers, uh, Wednesday's papers, the last day they can really have a go, yeah, really. Uh, they went their separate ways. And uh, I've never quite seen it, all the papers being quite so hysterical in the true sense of the word. Yeah. Uh, they were really meaningless. Uh, they were so partisan. Uh, it virtually stopped people, stopped me reading. The media will have a role to play. Uh, a on a partisan role, they will try to rule out any Labour government. But also, they'll be used by the politicians on all sides. Little details will be leaked to see how it will go, how it will fare, see what what the you know what the uh, the colonists will think of this, or what the papers might think of this. So, the newspapers will have a role both as uh, as putting information out, but also as being a little testing. Uh, unit for the uh, for the politicians, but I think on on the media, the influence is perhaps overinflated or perceived to be because Completely. if the media had that influence, uh, the Conservatives would win seventy percent of the vote because they have seventy percent of the the newspaper circulation by pro conservative um, papers. I think that uh, uh, I mean my particular view is that the English and British electorate. Uh, has a much longer-term view of, of how things play out and take their own view. And I think they will generally 
um, come back to the point of if there was a Labour minority um, number of MPs and votes doing uh, a, a government which was supported by the SNP, I totally agree with Chris, it would destroy uh, Labour's future viability for many years to come because the public would not forgive or forget that. There are three major players on Friday. That's the uh, 1922 committee, mm. Labour's NEC and the hierarchy of the Lib Dems. Those are the those are the backroom people who will be telling Cameron and Miliband and Clegg what they want and how they're going to vote for it because it all have to be put before the parties. Yeah, yeah. The role of the 1922 committee is an interesting one because that will obviously pull the Tories towards the right and in terms of what they want to negotiate, what they want to get that deal, which was a, a voice that was missing in 2010. And the Lib Dems, who a lot of their members feel they had their fingers burnt in 2010 with the coalition deal, you know, they want a a conference, a special conference, with their with their elected MPs to agree any coalition deal. So we're going to see. I think it's going to be a lot more, a longer, more protracted, more fought out coalition negotiation period. I think they will use the media to sort of kite fly ideas and potential deals. Um, but there's there's a bigger sign off process if you like, because I think a lot of a lot of the lead, the, all the leaders of the political parties are aware that when they didn't seek support from their membership base. It's come back to haunt them this I, time round. I don't. I, I think that currently nobody's quite worked out how to use this this kind of new media structure that we've got as well. I, I think it's interesting this year that obviously we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks the way in which the representation of the different parties has become more fragmented, but also the way in which the the media's voice has become more fragmented has kind of mirrored it as well. Um, and I, I think no one's quite worked like the media are. are are more important than they've ever been, and they're also more vocal and and more decisive in terms of who they're backing than than, than I, I can remember in recent memory. Yeah, also their voice is kind of a lot more um, disparate and dispersed, um, and I I think it's going to be interesting. We're kind of in uncharted territory as to how much effect the media can have in this in this new world in which you have got the Russell Brands who may play a tiny little role, but it's still a, a small role, or the, the kind of the podcasts that are happening in lots of different places around the UK, what sort of influence they're going to have on, on the people's mindsets and how they're going to respond to ultimately whatever's going to be decided in a Westminster room somewhere. I think at the end of the day, trust has been such a huge issue throughout. I mean, obviously, Lib Dem supporters from 2010 are going to have issues voting for them again, which is why we're looking at the absolute bottoming out of their support. I mean, they're likely to get less than 30 seats just because of not fulfilling promises and a variety of other issues as well. But the electorate doesn't trust the parties, they don't trust the leaders, they don't trust the media. They, even back in March, were saying that they had enough information or all the information they were going to get, but that doesn't mean that it was good information. People don't know how to make their decisions or what to do, and they don't have anybody to trust. I think how the government formation is communicated is the most important thing for how people take it, and whether or not there can be any rebuilding of trust, or if the parties will have these catastrophic generation-long, you know, destructions of who they are, because people just will never trust them again. Could, could this almost be an example of where the election campaign doesn't end on May the 7th? Because the parties, I presume, are going to have some work to do to instill that confidence in the public, but obviously negotiate with the other parties as well, and they may do some of those moves through the media to, to get the agreements that they want. I mean, realistically, how, how long are we going to look at this kind of rumbling on for? Well, it'll rumble on for a week or so, I would imagine. But uh, somewhere down the line, I think, I've said it before, that uh, I think it won't happen this time, but the far right of the Tory party is going to get scared by UKIP. Uh, Labour Party is going to get scared by SNP. Uh, they want power, as do the Tories want power. Could be five years' time that we might be in the position of Germany where the two major parties look at each other and say, actually, they're not so bad. There's only a cigarette paper between the, the centrists of both parties. And, you know, and do we really want the uh, out-of-Europe people telling us how to do or do we really want the militant part of the Labour Party telling us what to do? Who but, knows? But does that not fly in the face of this kind of new politics that we seem to be gravitating towards, this fragmentation of 
of the vote. Oh, there'll, still be, there'll still be fragmentation, but it'll be the sensible people in the two parties saying, actually, if we want a, 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 the best for the country, terrible to try phrase, uh, this is what we've got to do, rather than relying on UKIP or SNP. But that's all about self-interest, isn't it? Because no, that's preserving the status quo for the two biggest parties. Tony Blair. Mm -hmm. That's effectively what he did with the Labour Party. He was almost a Conservative. He went into the Labour Party, sort of rebranded it, repositioned it back firmly in the centre, and was the most successful Labour uh, Prime Minister and winning uh, electoral winning phenomenon, because that's where you know the, the, the battleground still is to win an election. And, uh, and you know, because of UKIP, Conservatives had to look a bit more to the right, because uh, Middleband came in and he has more socialist leanings. You've, you've, you've sort of not seen that... Uh, concentration on the centre and I think what Chris is saying is, is quite interesting because um, I mean also coming back to the, the right wing in the 1922 committee if Cameron doesn't get a majority there are a lot of people on the on the right of the Conservative Party who hate his guts so whether he, you know even if he gets a minority government where he'll still be leading that is going to be a big question mark. Cameron will be hoping at the bottom of his well just a small bit of his heart that Nick Dubois who's the uh, secretary of the 22 committee uh, his seat in Enfield is, is very, very delicate. And I think a little bit of camera will be hoping that he might not get through. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, Chris Moody, what, what do you make of that, what you've heard there about this idea of if, if the two biggest parties were almost a little bit more moderate, yeah. that um, they, would, they would probably find life a lot easier? I, I, th I think it, it, it's seen and kind of borne out in the way in which other, say, industries have and on a day-to-day -day basis I deal with them when when they enter a really fragmented market often the only way to succeed is and we use this term a couple of times end up in a world of kind of blandification where you make everything a kind of lowest common denominator so it's can be fitting for as many people as you possibly can and try take out all those sharp points or the things that might um, offend someone so yeah I it, it slightly worries me that that if I look at precedent from the, the industries that I work in, that that can be the case when you're faced with a, a, a kind of fragmented marketplace, which we are faced with at the moment. OK, well, that's quite a uh, worrying forecast, perhaps, <laughs> for uh, uh, the future of elections in this country, but we'll, we'll see what happens, uh, well, after after this vote and onwards from there. But uh, now we're at the finishing point of the, of the campaigns, or very nearly at the f finishing point at the time we're recording this. And in the spirit of the occasion, we're about to go to the polls. Let's let's take a few votes uh, from you guys. Who do you think has run the best campaign so far? So, well, I say so far in the in the whole thing. So, Chris Boffey, we'll start with you, and we'll work our way around the room. I think the Labour Party has run a fantastic campaign uh, from a very very low. Well, but basically, Labour Party lost the election five years ago when Ed Miliband was voted the party leader. Uh, and But he's done well. He's gone from being highly unelectable to not quite unelectable. And the Labour Party have done a bloody good job in, in getting that far. Uh, and I, as a Labour supporter, uh, and I, uh, uh, it's a shame that uh, we were in a position where we had someone running the party who is not electable and not strong enough to get the other very unpopular person out of the firing line, which was Ed Balls. OK, Ryan? So I think the SNP have done a superb job, but with the caveat they've had no real limitations to playing. They haven't had to put forward a sort of fiscally responsible manifesto, and as such they've been able to say grandiose, exciting things, which get left-wing people very, very excited, especially in Scotland. That said, Sturgeon was a superb standout performer on the TV debate, authentic and honest, and I think she'll be very happy with her performance, the SNP's performance in this campaign. I'd agree with Chris, I think the Labour Party has done a superb job. I think Ed Miliband did start from a low base, and the interesting thing is that he's sort of undone Lib Dem and Tory attacks. They were attacking Labour on the economy, and they were attacking Labour on Ed Miliband, and I think the economy won. To a lesser extent than the Ed Miliband one has, has been whittled away, but definitely the Ed Miliband one. I mean, he's his poll ratings have shot up. He's played some amazing, amazing. He's done some amazing plays. For example, Russell Brand, which everyone wrote off, I think will be seen as a success. You know, he's been prepared to 
engage and mobilise people who may not necessarily have a relationship with politics before. And I think that will lead to some interesting results in this election. OK. Chris Moody? Uh, yeah, I, I think it will be hard to to not acknowledge um, Sturgeon, um, but I think it's it's ultimately her and less of kind of the party's message that's, that's got out. Um, I'm intrigued by almost a stealth kind of campaign that the Greens have had. I think some of their campaign messaging and communications have been particularly strong. Um, just some of the some of the um, kind of campaign um, and communication pieces that they put out have been have been strong. Not the three in a bed policy. No, no, no that 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 wasn't necessarily <laughs> the the one I was pointing to, but you know, it opens up a different different world for them. Um, and I'm particularly intrigued by the Lib Dem campaign, which appears to have been kind of done in secret somewhere. I'm not I'm not quite sure what yeah. what they've been up to. And when we um, I sat down and watched the party political broadcast for Lib Dems the other day, and and just Nick Clegg's presence as this kind of voice this ghost in in um, in a podcast yeah. strangely whenever i see nick Clegg on tv now i feel like turn the sound i'm just playing violin <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, but it's i think so he almost feels like a deliberate tactic and then i suspect we'll see a little bit more of him in the in the coming days and his voice will perhaps be heard in a few a few darkened rooms as well okay michael um i i think it's the great tragedy that i don't think any of the parties perhaps with the exception of the smp have run a particularly strong campaign i think it's been unengaging, uninspired. I think it's been run by people who are very much sort of, you know, finger on the pulse in the marginals, listening to the focus groups, seeing the polling and, you know, triangulating this and doing that and doing all the tactics of a campaign, but without the strategy. And, OK, the Conservatives have had a very consistent strategy. It's, you know, economic competence versus chaos, and that's how they're framing um, the election choice and whether they are like Marino and able to grind out a victory and win the Premier League we'll have to see but um, I, I think the absence of fresh ideas to get people inspired I think the absence of uh, the sort of more uh, leadership emotional uh, uh, promise and and campaigns which would would have uh, galvanized the the electorate I, I think that's that's a, a shame Okay, and Emily? I have to say I completely agree. And this is my first general election in the UK where I get to play two roles of both commentator and voter, which is very exciting. And for the first time in my life, I have no idea who to vote for. Literally, no idea. And this thing's happening tomorrow. Um, and so for me, I've been consuming all of the messages and looking at all of the media and everybody's Facebook posts and what's happening on Twitter very much with the idea of, please, God, somebody inspire me. Somebody, somebody give me something to believe in or something to trust or something to go for. I was expecting the Greens to do a better job for them to actually become the proper protest vote because you can't really vote Lib Dem anymore. It doesn't really do anything. So who steps in on the left for that? And I'm a little bit gutted that the Greens haven't succeeded at that. And I'm sort of left without anyone to vote for. And I'm a, a big, strong believer in you go and you vote no matter what. But I have no idea what I'm going to do tomorrow. And I feel like if any of the parties had actually done their job, I'd have an answer to both questions. What would it have taken to, to sway you in one direction? Is it that uh, you haven't seen much on the ground from any of the parties? Is it the digital messaging hasn't been very good? Is it just all the, the campaigning has, has missed something for you? I think it is sort of all of it has missed something. I feel like there is a lack of soul at the center of all of the campaigns. I'm, I come from a, a polling background, I come from a strategic research background, and I feel like, you're right, there have been a lot of focus groups, and I don't understand how those messages got on the tombstone other than them being focus grouped <laughs> very badly. Um, it just feels like somebody missed out asking people what they actually need and what they actually want, and then figuring out what to do with that. It feels like we're just quoting back to people some nonsense oh, I think, some I, think I, I was told by a, a pollster, a, a very bright young chap from, from Comrades, who said that in all of the reading of the many polls and information that we've had, the one opportunity that no one seems to have grasped is to be the, the party that's not politics as usual. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And, and, to be, and that actually requires structural change. And this comes back to trust in po politics and politicians, because at the moment, politicians, I think, are the lowest respected uh, career choice in, in our country. 
Um, you know, and that's after bankers and you know oil <laughs> executives. Um, so, uh, <laughs> oh, we're, you know, add them. We're, we're, we're soaring. You know. uh, so, so I think unless we can attract the right people back into politics who don't come from the you know Westminster bubble, we're not going to be able to see outside. And, uh, you know, and, and if if you are in the Westminster bubble, get sorry, get a bloody ad man into the Labour Party. You can give some fresh perspective and uh, get that that you know. Because I, I do believe that uh, politicians have a duty to not just listen to what the people want. The people don't know what they want. No. Mm -hmm. They need to be. They need to be led, and that's it's the lack of leadership. I, I want my politicians to be inspired by what real people are saying, yeah. and that's what I mean. I mean, I think that we politicians need to be engaging with people. I do think that the research is important. You need to understand what's actually happening out there. We all exist in our own little bubbles. It's incredibly important to step out of them. Politicians are no different than, than us from that point of view. Um, but you're right. You don't need to just quote back at them. You need to be inspired by what people say and what they need and what happens next. You don't just do something as a policy because it's top on a on a list from a survey. The survey could have yeah. been bad. It could have had bad ideas. In I it. mean, there's a the positive spin for me yeah. uh, in in terms of this feels like we're, we're teeing up for for change, and it might not happen. It's not going to happen this election, unfortunately. Um, but as you know, again, the positive side of of understanding the relationship with my industry is that um, you know the, the iPod was famously created in a time of great recession often from and I think we have reached a slight baseline here and yeah. it's a baseline of a slight blandness and of lowest common denominator but that is the time when really innovative thinkers come out of the woodwork and start to create things my you mentioned, mentioned sorry you've mentioned recession there I walked down the strand on Friday night came out of the theatre walked to the tube station and since the 1980s, I've not seen so many people living rough, sleeping in doorways. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. And this, none of this has come up. The, the, the Labour Party should be putting this forward. There are yeah. people struggling in this country. You know, not, I'm not talking about the middle class in London or Suffolk or Oxfordshire. There are people struggling. And these, no, people, uh, and these weren't old alkies. These were men and women in their 20s and 30s who look clean, we're trying to do the best, maybe. But if I, if I collectively take what all you guys are, are saying here, is this not an argument as to why Nicola Sturgeon is cutting through so well in Scotland? Because she is standing for the left, or perceived to be in a way that Labour isn't, you know? The, she's not standing. Well, she's not standing, good point, but she's putting across a message um, uh, and uh, sort of, you know, not going along with this sort of austerity line that, that Labour that's always have. It's easy. It's an unfair comparison, I think, because Nicola Sturgeon has less limitations from the media and, and whatnot than the the politicians, the, the, at least the major free parties do. And you look at Farage mania, he was able to say what he wanted and that attracted people. But I completely agree. I think the, all the political parties need to look at themselves. It's a long-term change. It's getting more authentic people into politics, you know, increasing pay so that it rivals the city so you're attacked you know attracting top talent it becomes a desirable fashion to do and you bring in people who genuinely care and want to make a difference and don't you know at the moment it's people who are attracted to the tactics in the game of politics i mean if i, I can't speak for the conservative party but if you look at for example labor party selection procedures you know you have to be an absolute wonk to be able to navigate those and very very rarely someone spectacular comes through from a different background like i imagine that happened with with tony blair and then all of a sudden you end up with someone who is a little bit different a little bit visionary but until you get that person you know turkeys don't vote for christmas it's going to stay the same yeah we're not getting is the government of the people for the people we're getting the governors for themselves well, I think it was interesting that um, for the London mayor election, Labour Party's already had quite a few announcements of candidates. They're all from, you know, Westminster Central casting. Um, and uh, it's interesting, I think, from the Conservative perspective, that Ivan Masso, who, you know, uh, ex-alcoholic, uh, orphan, uh, all these issues around him, but had set up his own financial services business to cater for the gay community when no other financial sector uh, company would service their needs, um, is standing as a Conservative candidate. I think that's really fresh. He's an entrepreneur, somebody who gets stuff done. And I think we'll see this 
move, move towards people who are not from the Westminster Bible. But the that's... problem with that is that the media just won't give him the attention that the others will get. It becomes uh, this little cartel well, between media and politics. to break through but using you social you media. Siobhan <laughs> <laughs> Benita. Exactly. This is, we, this is the future. Yeah, Siobhan Benita, in the, in the independent candidate in the last mayor election, and she ran a phenomenal campaign, and I, I spoke to her. She was at a, a Labour Party event. She's not a Labour Party member. This was after the election came through. And, you know, she didn't get a look in with the media until she'd sort of usurped them with, with a social media campaign. But even then, that wasn't enough. And there was then comments in the media which sort of knocked her campaign. And all of a sudden, you find yourself going up against the, the you know, the machine, but then the machine attacking you back. And I think, for me, the thing that's come out over the last couple of weeks with this podcast in particular, it is the media. I think that's what needs to change, and I hope it is with social media. But when you've got rich media barons running, you know, the 75% of national newspapers, you're in trouble because those guys aren't stupid. They want to stay in the game. They pay people to make them stay in the game, and they start taking a big chunk of social media as well. But you can buy you can bypass the media now in a way that you wouldn't have been able to do in elections a decade or two decades ago or before that. So it's not quite the time yet. I think yeah. it's coming, but it's not there yet. Yeah, I agree. Another five years, maybe. It's not there yet. I think the social media has played a great part, but not the major part yet. It will come. But yeah. at the top of the show, Michael did make that point that with 70% or so of the press supporting the Conservatives, or Conservatives with a bit of help from the Lib Dems again, um, does that not suggest that even with all that clout, all that media power behind them, they've still... Well, we, it remains to be seen whether they can win a majority or not. I mustn't get ahead of myself. But, course, you know, if things go the way that many of us expect them to, they, they are probably not going to get a majority tomorrow. So does that not suggest that the media, it's not all that crucial anymore in deciding the it's outcome of the election? It's never been crucial. It's never been the one thing that does it. But it's just more music, louder music. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It has an impact. All right. I was going to ask you all who you thought had run the worst campaign in this uh, election, but um, you've been pretty savage about most of the campaigns already, so I think we can probably uh, skip that point and say that most of them could have done a bit better. Would that be the general uh, consensus, would we? I did expect more from UKIP, to be honest. Mm. I really did. I thought Farage came into this election you know, with a lot of media attention, people wanting to say and do things, you know, which were a little bit different, and I don't know what really happened, to be honest, but... I think he spent more time looking at it after his candidate. He's one, he's one man. Yeah. 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 That's the but he's one man for microphone and he says some crazy stuff and yeah. we've seen less of that. But he's, he's kind of like Ronald McDonald, isn't he? He's representative of the outfit and take him away and there's, it's just yeah. essentially just yeah. the same as, as everything else, really. Okay. Uh, we, we talked about the media there, so um, let's just uh, reflect on the, the coverage that we've seen over the last five or so weeks. Uh, where have you guys found the, the, the best, most interesting, most insightful coverage of this election? Have you found it in the newspapers? Have you found it on television? Have you found it on social media or digital? Emily, where have you found... I mean, you've been very disappointed that, <laughs> that nobody's really cut through to you, but what, has anyone given you a, a sort of good, good uh, report of this election so far? Um, sort of between reading The Telegraph and The Guardian, what's on Facebook, what's on Twitter, and what happens at dinner parties I go to. <laughs> I think, honestly... I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with people, most of whom are almost as confused as I am, don't really know what anybody stands for, what the differences are, why they should bother to vote. I've heard more than a few people talking about literally going in and spoiling their ballots for lack of any other choice or knowing what to do. Um, so I think in terms of coverage, we've got the fracturing that we were talking about earlier, but that also then flows down into, you know, if we're talking about a product, it'd be word of mouth, right? It, you know, it flows down into those conversations that we have with people. And that's sort of where I am. I'm, I've got all of these people around me who also aren't inspired, don't know where to look for good information. There's a lot of information, but where's the good information? And I'm sort of at a loss. Chris Boffey, do you think any of the newspapers have covered themselves in glory in this election? I'm surprised the other day that The Independent endorsed the I, Conservatives. I just think that was bad writing on by, by the editor. I just think he didn't understand how people would would, would read that, mm. and uh, because it has been interpreted yes, as an by his own staff, yeah, by his own staff. 
and he's kept very quiet about that. I think he's slightly embarrassed about that. Mm. But, uh, no, I read uh, every paper every day. Always have done for 40 years of my career, because that was my job. I had to know what was new, and the only way to know what's new is to know what's old. <laughs> so I've read all the papers every day, and quite a lot of the times I look at something and think, oh, there's no point in reading that. And, but what has impressed me this election is the radio. I think BBC Radio has been fantastic, and I'm not talking about the, just the, the Mark A World at One or Today programme. Radio 5 Live has been really terrific in getting out and getting to the constituencies, and they are talking to people who've got problems and people who matter, and I think, I think BBC Radio has been absolutely terrific. OK. Chris Moody? I'd have to agree, actually. I think the kind of non-pictorial content has been some of the most interesting. One, because often it allows you to go a little bit richer and a little bit deeper, or a little bit more uh, focus on specific individual stories. And it's given, radio particularly, given, gives a lot more space for a story to be told properly. Um, and is not as hysterical as, as perhaps potentially some of the, the editorial content. Personally, I've, I've spent a lot more time online. I, I, too, read a lot of newspapers traditionally. I've realised I've started reading them a lot less when I've been focusing, particularly preparing for these podcasts, um, just because I, the ability to keep kind of up to the minute. Um, and that, that's been particularly interesting. I think that you're right that social media this, this time round just hasn't quite... We haven't worked out how to use it, how to both post or also how to receive... It hasn't quite worked out, particularly with political parties. I've got no idea so far. I think that that will change, and I think more and more people are becoming their own editors. And that that's a particularly interesting thing, whereby you can piece together your own information. I think word of mouth you know, will always be a very valuable source. Um, I think just on the more traditional level, I think Channel 4 always, for me, are, are interesting because they bring lots of alternative points of view um, and kind of different tones as well and I think that's been missing slightly from the election so mixing the humorous and satirical with the more traditional reporting with the kind of informational reporting as well um, and just looking at the Channel 4 news wall I, I hope that isn't the future of how we consume news from from now on but there's something instant and different about it and, and as we we're saying I think that's what's needed next time round. Well uh, Channel 4's election night coverage is going to be fronted by Jeremy Paxman and David Mitchell. So, yeah, you do get that sort of interesting uh, mix of personalities there. Brian, will you be tuning into Channel 4 or will you be going to one of the other broadcasters or even social for your election night coverage? Uh, I think I'll be, I'll be out on a boat in a bar somewhere, <laughs> praising that it's, it's all over. Um, but in terms of consuming news and information about election, I have to agree with Chris, actually, good thing I've found doing it. I've, I have a daily menu of podcasts. Not least the the drum podcast, but the Times has been phenomenal. The Guardian, and and what because what that allows is, you hear the candid discussion. You know, there's no editorial element to it. There's four or five people having a conversation, and you know, it's the marketplace of ideas. You hear people challenge or praise different opinions, and that allows you to form your own. So that's been really good. And also, it's a podcast, so it works around your day. You know, there's no set time for it. I've also been fortunate enough to knock on a number of doors for the Labour Party, full disclosure, but not necessarily to people who want to vote for the Labour Party or indeed who even like the Labour Party. And it's educational. You know, you see what politics actually means in people's lives. And it's not about Ed Miliband and the leadership. It's not about economy and GDP. It's about what's happening to them on their doorstep, what's happening to their families, their friends, their societies, their communities. And I think the politicians who tap into that, and there are a few in this election at a local level, will be the ones who get the most success. OK. Michael, you must have enjoyed reading the newspapers over the last few weeks, given the broad support for the Conservatives. Um... Well, only the question still remains, will it have the impact? But uh, for me, the um, one moment where I thought the actual uh, coverage of the campaign uh, really stepped up was when the three leaders were interviewed on Question Time by the audience. Because mm. we saw then, without the you know, um, professional interviewer, or, or the, 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 I thought the farce of the seven leaders standing on stage was, was, was awful but actually having 30 minutes of grilling by, you know, insightful members of the public was, was actually, you know, 
that that's the lesson. If you want to bring, you know, we've had such a sanitised campaign with people flying to, uh, uh, um, you know, disclosed locations to meet selected members of their party. I mean, boring, boring, boring. So suddenly it actually began to catch light and then quickly they sort of snuffled it out again. So <laughs> for me, that question time uh, audience with the uh, three leaders was, was the exciting moment of the campaign. See, real people. Yeah. It's important. Okay, well, what does it all mean then? So we're almost at decision time. Um, what is going to be the outcome? What sort of government will we end up with, if any, uh, after the polls close on Thursday? Uh, and then what's going to happen thereafter? It's time to put you all on the spot. It's the moment you've all been waiting for, especially Emily, who's come along today and been thrown straight into the... The, the spotlight of having to make a prediction, uh, even though you'd promise not to make a prediction in this election campaign. But uh, given that you're the most nervous about it, we'll let you go first, <laughs> Emily. You we're generous to, like that. You have to understand, in 2012, I called it to a decimal point six weeks out. So when I said I wasn't going to call it this time, it's because I, I have my own integrity You've got a reputation to, to protect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm keeping it very fuzzy on purpose because there are... 650 constituencies and not enough people to fill them. The polling is going to be massively flawed no matter what. The modeling is going to be wrong. It's very, very tricky and we can't have a UK's version of Nate Silver because we just don't have the data to base it on. So, hygiene warning. Um, <laughs> Conservatives, somewhere between 280 to 283. Uh, Labour, uh, 264 to 266. UKIP, 1. Um, Lib Dem, I don't know, under 30, maybe about 28. Um, I don't know about the SNP. I'm not going to pretend to know Scotland. Um, lots. <laughs> yeah, lots. <laughs> um, and I was going to say, you know, uh, a Labour minority government, but that seems to be kind of tricky, having put himself in a corner on that one. Um, so I'm, I am at a bit of a loss as to how we are governed after the election, um, so I'm, I'm really not quite sure. Okay, Should well, it's a, a very specific prediction, nonetheless. Thank you very much for that, Emily. <laughs> Michael, are you going to go for some numbers, or are you going to give us a more broad prediction? Um, well, I've been very consistent from the outset uh, that I believe it will be a Conservative majority. I thought it was interesting that today Kinnock uh, came out and, and warned that Miliband will lose due to the shy Tory vote people who won't be willing in a poll to say that they're Conservative, but when they're in the ballot box, vote Conservative, which is what happened to him in 92, because the polls all the way through showed a, a Labour victory until the outcome. So um, the two reasons why I believe that that will be the case on this occasion is that um, we've seen the Conservative campaign has been religiously relentless on economic competence versus chaos. Uh, the Conservative Party have grown their gap between them and Labour on that issue from 11% when they took over from the disaster of Gordon Brown, the financial meltdown, to 18% today. Uh, secondly, that still, although Miliband has done a good job to increase his personal ratings, uh, Cameron, when it comes to who would you like to be Prime Minister, is way ahead. And I don't believe there's been an instance where a party which has been ahead on both those scores has ever lost an election. I might be proved wrong, but I, my prediction is that there will be a Conservative majority, probably in single figures. OK. Chris Moody? Well, throughout the entire few weeks, I've managed not to pin my colours to the mast. You may may or may not have noticed. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to do it now. Just... Um, but I do, I, I, I'll be honest, I, I think it, there'll be a, a, a minority government and I suspect as well that Mr Clegg's invisible campaign um, hasn't been for nothing and he will be involved in a great deal of conversations and may well be that kingmaker that has, um, has got to come from somewhere. OK, Ryan? Okay, so I, I think this couple of guarantees outcomes in this election, one is a post-mortem on the polls and how much they're allowed to dictate media coverage in that I don't think they will be accurate. Second of all, I think there'll be a heralding of the personal vote, i.e. candidates working hard locally with real strong ground war 
and getting their name out there amongst the, the, the constituency. And related to that, I think the first past the post will come under the spotlight again um, in terms of the results that can throw up in forming a government. And I think that will come from the fact that I think Labour will do a little bit better than expected in Scotland. I think there's a real strong ground campaign there from Labour. It's really stepped up as well in the last couple of months. And there's some big names there who are working hard, so, so hard, to get their names out there and get people mobilised to vote. And that will not stop until 10 o'clock tomorrow. Equally, I think the Lib Dems will do a little bit better in England than expected because Lib Dems have a fantastic record at local level and they galvanise local support. And even knocking around doors in Suffolk last night, people saying they hate the Lib Dems, but they were asking who Simon Hughes run for. And when you say Lib Dems, they're like, oh, no, we're still going to vote for him. You know, the, the, uh, with that in mind, I think we'll see, I think we'll see a Liberal Labour coalition. That's okay. my call. OK, thanks, Ryan. And finally, Chris Boffey, over to you. OK, um, I was a bit worried when uh, Emily became fuzzy and started talking about 283. And... <laughs> 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 but uh, my heart says that uh, Labour will get enough to have a coalition with the Lib Dems and not really need the SNP. My head tells me that... Uh, It'll be a Tory Lib Dem coalition. The Lib Dems will have a lot fewer seats, and, but they'll need to rely on the DUP for confidence and uh, support. So that's where I, th I think it is. I'm pretty confident that uh, in about three weeks' time we'll not have the same three political leaders of the main parties. Yeah, if, if, uh, if the Lib Dems do really badly get less than 25 seats, Clegg will go. Uh, if Labour get less than 250, I think Miliband will go. And, uh, you know, I, my, I would then predict Alan Johnson, but uh, that's a long day down the road. But no, my, you know where my heart is, but I think it'll be uh, Tory Lib Dem with needing the DUP on uh, confidence and support. Okay, well, thank you all for your predictions. We'll now just have to wait patiently to see what the nation decides. That's all we've got time for on this week's episode of The Election Beat. A massive thanks, as ever, to our hosts at Jungle Studios here in Soho. And a big thanks to our guests, Emily Hunt, Chris Boffey, Michael Mazinski, Ryan Wayne and Chris Moody. We'll be back for one final episode next Thursday, by which time we may have a new government, or maybe not. And until then, have a great week, and we'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>